all the latest business news from WA. Mark my words, your weekly news briefing. Welcome to Mark My Words. I'm Mark Beyer, joined by Mark Pownell, discussing the big news in business this week. More bad news in the mining industry, particularly nickel, as well as iron ore. We're going to look at what the federal government and state government might do about it. Some good news from former Test cricketer Wally Edwards. Liberal Party pre-selections, Mindaroo Foundation, grain harvest results, lots to discuss. Absolutely, Mark. And uh, first up, I'm not sure I've seen a set of financial headlines as bad as Thursdays for quite a while. Uh, And you've just summarised them. Well, let's start with the BHP's big uh, nickel write-down. Look, BHP has effectively written off the entire value of its Nickel West business, uh, about as bad as you could imagine. So the the financial write-down was $5.4 billion Aussie dollars. Mm. If you include provisions for closure and rehabilitation, there's actually a negative value on that business. So that's a business that employs more than 3,000 people. They've got several mines up in the gold fields. They've got uh, processing operations at Cambelda, Kalgoorlie. They've got a refinery at Quinana. So a very big vertically integrated operation. And they're the main processor in WA. That's right, yep. Um, other people generally just sort of dig it up out of the mines and then have to hand it on to someone else for the processing, mm. like BHP. And then, even more worryingly, Chief Executive Mike Henry said that they're contemplating putting the whole business on care and maintenance. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, lots of worries there. They're currently reducing operating costs. They're reducing their capital investment plans, uh, both for the Nickel West business, but also the... West Musgrave project, that was the one they bought last year from Oz Minerals. Mm, right, so uh, there you go. Mark, just to delve into the history whilst we discuss the current terms, I mean, you know, this was sort of an unloved asset. Mm, I'm thinking maybe eight or nine years ago, maybe less. It was on the block. They put uh, Eddie Hagel in from Recollection to run the place. He got it ship shape. And then the nickel price took off and it was suddenly the company, it was a darling that, you know, that they nearly got rid of and suddenly became a great earner. It feels like that's a bit of a classic nickel story. I think Nick Evans in The Australian talked about it going back to 2009 or 2000, something around then. I can't remember exactly. There was a moment when nickel actually out-earned iron ore or something like that because of the price went to $54,000 a pound. Where are we at now? Do you know what the nickel price is these days? Is that well, a question I, without notice? I know <laughs> it's fallen by about 50% in the past 12 months. Yeah, but down And, and look, I've been writing about thousands, um, right. loosely following nickel for you know, more than 20 years, and it's, you know, every, pretty much every commodity is volatile, uh, nickel more than most. And, of course, the, the big shift that we're seeing in the market is the substantial, very substantial growth in production out of Indonesia. So this is seen as more than just the latest cyclical up and down. This is seen as a really substantial structural shift in the market. Uh, and those big Indonesian operations, backed primarily by Chinese money, mm. they're not going anywhere. So that's the structural shift the industry needs to contemplate. Yeah, no, no, it's, it's a tough one. 
Um, and, you know, so, I mean, obviously that would be a big deal if BHP put its, its, those uh, operations on care and maintenance. That's quite a lot of people, I would imagine. Oh, enormous, yeah. Um, and, and it was a pretty sweeping statement from Mike Henry. No details there, but just sort of leaving open that possibility of the whole thing going on care and maintenance. Mm, Very dramatic. Okay. Well, there's a political angle to this, but we won't, we won't get there just yet because uh, we also had West Farmers saying that it won't make any money from lithium. So West Farmers is one of um, several groups making very big investments in lithium in Western Australia. They've partnered with the Chilean group SQM. They've got the Mount Holland mine up in the goldfields. They've got a concentrator up there. And then they're building a lithium hydroxide refinery in Quinana. Mm. So West Farmers put out their results uh, during the week. Um, and incidentally, well, more than incidental, you know, continuing to make very good money from their retail operations, Bunnings, Kmart and so yeah. on. So they're in a very healthy financial position, uh, you know, small increase in net profit. Uh, that gives them the capacity to think long term. And this was the theme that Rob Scott kept on coming back to when he was asked about lithium. Mm. You know, they're investing close to $2 billion in this. And yet he had to admit, that their sales of concentrate out of the Mount Holland project will not make money in the current market. And he said partly because you know, the volumes are relatively small, so therefore the unit costs are relatively high. They might, in fact, postpone sales um, until the market improves, and they've got the, the balance sheet strength to consider those sorts of moves. Uh, but, gee, it's a, it's a concern when people are making these big investments in new projects and uh, they're in the red from the start. Yeah, and, you know, West Farmers are not a company that tolerates loss-making assets for very long, um, you know, long-term or not. You know, they, they really have got um, financial discipline around each unit and, you know, my recollection is they look for 25% return is kind of like, their standard and they'll tolerate you know 15% for a while uh, if they if the management of that unit can talk them into can talk the overall management into the fact that they're going to do better um, but when you you can't really crystal ball gaze at the moment about what what lithium's going to do in the near future so a challenging one for a unit like that yeah i mean look, rob scott kept on talking about investing for the long term but yeah, what is long term? What is short term? For how long will lithium prices stay at their current depressed levels? Yeah. Um, I mean, look, it was notable. He said that they did a careful review about whether they needed to make an impairment against their lithium assets. You know, in a in a similar way to a lot of the nickel producers have written down or written off the value of their assets. Yeah. And they said, well, no, we're not going to do an impairment at this point. So clearly, they've made an assessment that there's a a bit of a short-term, well, this is my reading of it, that there's a short-term dip in the price and we're going to come out of it. So lithium and nickel might be different stories. Mm, okay. Well, let's, uh, you know, as I often say, watch this space. Mark, uh, let's get to the politics of it. How do you think the state and federal governments are going to respond? Well, Madeleine King on Friday morning has already uh, come out with an announcement putting nickel on the federal government's critical minerals list. Mm. So yeah, this is the, the catch-all term for these minerals that are considered 
pivotal for the energy transition, um, things that we need to make electric vehicles and wind turbines and all those good things for the long-term future. And it was a bit contentious that nickel has not been on that list uh, until now. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of people will tell you there's more nickel in a lithium battery than any other mineral. But uh, this, this crisis in the nickel industry has finally prompted the federal government to act. So what does that actually mean? Okay. It means that nickel producers are eligible for a whole range of government uh, programs. So, for instance, they've got a thing called the Critical Minerals Facility, $4 billion sitting in there. Mm. So you can put your hand up and say, we'd like a share of that money for our project. Uh, there's a thing called the International Partnerships Program. So there's, as I say, I guess against the backdrop where a lot of other countries, the US, Europe in particular, have been throwing a lot of financial support towards producers of critical minerals. Yep. And a lot of people in Australia are saying, well, we need to match them. Now, and effectively, China's done that in concert with Indonesia around the rules that Indonesia's put in place, haven't they? I mean, that most of that nickel that's being produced out of Indonesia is going back to China. That's right. Yeah. Yep. Yep. The other thing too, look, Roger Cook was asked about this on Thursday. He wasn't clear, but he, I guess his body language, he was sort of indicating that the government is looking favourably at some sort of support for the industry, so Which some is, sort of royalties relief. Yeah, okay. Um, whether that's going to be enough to really shift the dial remains to be seen. Also being calls for production credits. Um, the other thing Madeleine King talked about was this idea that because Australian nickel is clean and green, particularly compared to the stuff in Indonesia, mm. which is produced by processing plants that are, tend to be coal-fired, they're saying, well, the Australian nickel should get a premium because it's the good stuff. Yeah. Now... In practice, that hasn't happened. Madeleine King said she's been in discussions with her international counterparts to try and ensure that pricing reflects the quality and the the green credentials of the nickel. Yeah. So that so that would be a big structural shift if she can achieve that. Yeah. Look, um, I mean, I guess maybe that that's not. Yeah. That that's uh, that's possibly the one substantial move in here. Uh, I don't know, that it sounds difficult to achieve. I mean, nickel's just, it's a commodity and it's pretty hard to differentiate it. Although, you know, that's kind of what, you know, Andrew Forrest is trying to do and everybody's trying to do is, do, and, you know, more recent announcements from BHP and Rio and Blue Scope around steel is trying to differentiate it. Um, I think the Indonesian angle is, is deeper than the fact that it's coal-fired power. I think it's actually, it's laterite nickel, and which is a lot more energy uh, consumption required, a lot more processing required to to turn it into the next level of nickel um, before you ship it out. So it, it's it's not just the scale of what's going on there, but it's the type of nickel that's dirtier, if you want to use that word. But those other things, the critical minerals list stuff is really about industry development, not saving an industry. I don't quite know how, you know, four billion, what are you going to do? pay the mines to stay open it's it seems a bit of a challenge to think that that would be the case royalties relief i don't know what is what are royalties on nickel are they in the you know single digit three three and a half percent or are they a little bit higher than that you know it's it's at the margin really isn't it when it comes to uh operating and i mean you know a lot of minerals 
groups are at the margins when it comes to scale, but I don't know that that's enough. Um, well, look, the other thing that's happening, uh, Prime Minister Anthony Albanese is coming to Perth at the start of next week and he's bringing his entire ministry to Perth. So we're going to be uh, have an overload of politicians. Yep. But you'd have to think, given this circumstance, that we're going to hear something from him about a response to this. And if we don't, I think that'll be a, uh, um, you know, he'll, he'll be open to criticism for not responding. And yet some of the other states might say, well, hang on, you've got this special GST deal, which they're all complaining about. Why don't you take some of those billions, WA, and invest it into your nickel industry to keep it alive? Mm, balancing act there, going to be interesting. All right, now, Mark, there was also more bad news on Thursday where Pacific Pacific moved to slash production. Look, this is a totally different circumstance, but another dramatic piece of news. So Pacific Pacific, they're the big Chinese mining company, got a giant iron ore project up in the Pilbara. And critically, Clive Palmer is their landlord. Mm. And they've been in long-running legal battles with each other over the way they uh, operate the project. It's kind of a bizarre situation up in the Pilbara, all that space. Pacific Pacific said they've run out of space mm. for their operation. And under the state agreement they've got... So Clive Palmer's company, Mineralogy, held the original tenements up where the project was developed. Pacific Pacific has bought the rights to dig up the magnetite ore and process it. You know, so they've invested, what, more than $12 billion US dollars getting that project underway. They were losing money for many years, but uh, they're finally turning a profit now. But in the meantime, they're paying a lot of money to Clive Palmer in royalties. You know, he had the most sensational deal when he negotiated that in the first place. Uh, latest figures they put out, he's received more than US $2.5 billion dollars from Pacific Pacific. Over the life of the project? Over or? the life of the project. Right. Okay. So there were some upfront payments plus royalties. Right. And despite that, he's still not happy. Yeah. Uh, in fact, last year, he launched new legal action saying that Pacific Pacific had conspired to injure and embarrass him. Uh, he also had a big win in the courts last year over this issue where Pacific is saying, come on, Clive, put in an application... So under the state agreement, so that we can expand the footprint of our operations and allow us to maintain production at current volumes. Yeah. He hasn't done that. He said to them, well, you pay me $750 million first, then I'll put in the application. Now, is that just argy-bargy? Maybe. But that's, that's, they're the, the dollars at stake here. Yeah. And it's finally got to this sort of terrible point where they're saying, look, um, we're just going to have to scale back. Now, there's, again, about 3,000 people employed directly and indirectly on that project. And they flagged the possibility that they might need to suspend their operations if there isn't some sort of breakthrough on the legal impasse. So <laughs> a terrible situation. Well, it is. A, I mean, look, it's a terrible situation if you're Citic Pacific and its employees. Uh, you know, I guess ultimately they got themselves in this mess uh, they clearly didn't do their due diligence on the person they were going into business with and they clearly didn't write a good enough contract. Uh, you know, that, that, that's the, the pure nature of business. The, you know, I mean, you can obviously look at broad, more broadly. They're the states 
assets, you know, it, it's our ore and that's why there's a state agreement. I don't know, but the state hasn't had a lot of pleasure in dealing with Clive Palmer either. Um, and we've even, they've even, you know, he's even sued the premier, the previous premier <laughs> for defamation, all sorts of things. Um, and he is a very litigious fellow, you know. I mean, there's no, there's no law against being that person, but it's probably not the person you want to be in business with. Uh, he's got his foot on the hose and he's not going to take it off until they pay him some money or until he sees some other negative thing, I guess, that decide, that makes him decide he will go ahead or the state government somehow. I don't know. What can they do? It, it's a state agreement. They've, it's, it's a deal. It's, it's not great. And it hasn't been a great earner for them, I don't think, that, that mine, has it? No, so they were in the red for a long time. Yeah, you know, so it's... Anyway, I mean... What can we say? You know, you look, you tear your, you'd be tearing your hair out if you were Acidic Pacific, I'm sure of it. Well, worst case scenario, everyone's worse off. Yes. They shut down, they lose the jobs, Acidic sort of writes off the investment, and Clive Palmer loses his royalties. Well, you know, does he, in the sense of what's the small print say that if they stop production, who gets to, you know, is there some clause there that says it reverts back to mineralogy? But that implies he'd need someone else to come in and operate the project. Well, okay, yeah. But he's got some billions of dollars. He could probably run a... He could probably get some contract to, to do it, couldn't he? Uh, I don't know if I'd go into that. No, fair point. Okay, um, now, for context, the unemployment rate has edged up to 4.1%. Yeah, look, we've spoken in the past about the capacity of people that lose their jobs, at whether it's nickel mines or alumina refineries, to fairly easily walk into a new role, very tight labour market. It's starting to shift slowly. Uh, so unemployment rate in January, 4.1%, as you say. This is the first time in two years that the unemployment rate has been above 4%. And the boffins at the Bureau of Statistics did their analysis. They looked at the trend over the last sort of year or two. They looked at the unemployment rate, the underemployment rate, the participation rate, other indicators. And they said, look, all of these point to a slowing labour market. Yeah, not a dramatic shift and coming off an extremely tight sort of market over mm. the past year or so. Uh, if you look at what the Reserve Bank, which of course is, you know, they're looking at the unemployment rate as a key indicator for where they take interest rates. They're already assuming the unemployment rate hits 4.4% by December this year. Yeah. So, you know, we're, we're coming off uh, that extreme, unusually low rate, sort of getting back to something a bit more normal. So, look, still a pretty good number uh, from a, if you look at it in a longer-term perspective, uh, but not quite as tight. So if we do see more closures in the mining industry coming into a market where it's a bit tougher to get a job. Yeah, and, I mean, I guess... I mean, historically, the, it's a hard one to pick. This one, isn't it? It can it can shift quite suddenly, you know. And, and it's I mean, obviously, it's a partially as a result of interest rate movements over the last year and a half, um, and they're just they're, they're they're not very precise weapons when it comes to dealing with inflation and managing you know the economy. And uh, you know, it is you're right. What do we what do we what do we feel comfortable with? Is five percent still an okay number when it comes to unemployment? Well, for those of us who've been around a few years, that's still, I'd say that's still a pretty good number. Yeah, yeah. 
And uh, when we say three and a half percent, we're really talking that's full employment. So we're really talking about, yeah, you know, but you've got you've got things closing down and uh, and you've got companies tightening up. Uh, it can make a big difference. So it'll be interesting. Uh, and it's coming at a time too, Mark, where we've seen some pretty amazing um, uh, sort of enterprise agreements and the like, or pay deals. In some certain areas, I think the train drivers up north just got something enormous. Uh, 20 odd percent over yeah. a few years. This is the, the BHP train drivers. Yeah. And some of them are paid up to $400,000. You know, yeah. it, that these are big numbers. And similar deal for the waterside workers to, D- to settle World. that dispute. Yep. 25%. That's, uh, that's a big, these are big numbers and there's a lot of them going around. So, you know, you're seeing that stuff pushing into the labour market and people saying, well, I can't afford to match that. I'm out. (laughs) All right, let's look at some positive news, if it is that. Um, Certainly positive for Wally Edwards, former Test cricketer. He sold his garden irrigation business, Holman Industries, for $160 million. What a great little story. Yeah. Well, fairly big story, really. Mm. Uh, So, look, as you say, Wally Edwards uh, would be known to many people as a former Test cricketer and chair of Cricket Australia for for a few years there as well. Yeah, I mean, we do talk him about him as a Test cricketer. He only played three Tests, but he was a Test cricketer, so that's definitely more than I ever did in my cricket cricket career. Um, But I think he is probably better known as the chairman of the Australian Cricket Association. Yeah, yeah. And quietly in the background, he's been building up Holman Industries. So it's an irrigation business and sort of plumbing supplies. Operates out of Osborne Park. Um, it's it's a brand that people would have seen in their local Bunnings store. Yeah. May not have realised that it was manufactured locally. Absolutely. Uh, it was just sort of another brand on the shelf. Uh, so nice to sort of recognise something uh, successfully done here in that sort of manufacturing space and caught the eye of Reliance Worldwide Corporation. So that's an ASX company based in Queensland, uh, got very large operations internationally. Uh, I think what, market cap 3.3 billion, annual revenue 1.8 billion, so... Very substantial operator. Yeah, and and I think its local revenue was about a hundred and eighty million, uh, and I think which which is similar to what Holman. Yeah, so they kind of, kind of doubles its Australian revenue, and Holman gives it a completely kind of completely different business. It, it it's what you'd call it complementary because Reliance is a plumbing supplies group. Holman does have a plumbing wing or division but its main game has been that garden you know pop-up sprinklers and hoses and things like that um and it has kind of more of that uh it's into the retail sector supplying bunnings as you mentioned and that sort of thing whereas um so that's different than what reliance has which is much more wholesale you know going to trades and that sort of thing yeah and look, the key metric that often look for in these sorts of deals is the earnings multiple yeah. that the sale was achieved at. So Holman has sold it seven times EBITDA, so that sort of underlying profit. That's a good number mm. for a, a mid-sized private business. You know, a lot of small, very small businesses sell for sort of only two or three times EBITDA. Yes. Um, listed companies might be 15 times, but for a, a mid-sized private company, 
that's a good earnings multiple. Yeah, and I mean, obviously, that's based on you know the scale of the operation, the, the solidity of it. It's got manufacturing. This, you know, it's not a business that that's going to collapse overnight. That's they're, they're obviously figuring that it's going to it's going to earn that money for a long time, and they can grow it. I mean, you know, they talk about seven times earnings, but they've probably. In fact, it had grown a fair bit in the last couple of years, so they're probably anticipating further growth. So it's seven times current earnings, but it might be actually, you know, more like five times the forecast. Um, so they're, you know, they're, they're pretty bullish about it, I think. Anyway, uh, good luck to him. We don't exactly know how much he gets from that 160. You know, there was a, there is, they commented there's a debt component in there. There may be some other shareholders at a minor level, you know, management and the like. But uh, you'd, you'd think he might have done the better part. He might have got the better part of a hundred million. Well done, Molly. Might just make our rich list. Who knows? We'll see. Hey. All right. Now, um, Mark, there's a lot of talk around about Liberal Party pre-selections. What's the latest? Yeah, look, just sort of a quick rundown on some of the developments there. Um, I think a lot of the listeners would have picked up the news from I think last uh, weekend, Sandra Brewer was uh, got the got the nod from the Liberal Party members in Cottesloe. Yep. Um, that's subject to endorsement by the Liberal Party State Council, I think the term is. Yep. So she's set to replace David Honey. So I think you know, a, a good step in terms of new talent, younger talent coming through, setting up for the future. Yep. Uh, in fact, we're seeing quite a lot of uh, change uh, Linda Reynolds, a senator for Western Australia, she announced during the week that she would not be contesting the next election. Yep. Uh, some other, uh, Peter Collier, state MP, former minister, he's going to be retiring at the next election. Okay. Uh, Donna Farragher, she's been in state parliament a long time, yeah, also which is retiring. Yeah, very young entry into, into parliament. Yep. But there you go. Uh, so, you know, all these things, uh, freeing up opportunities for new people to come in for the state Liberal Party. Uh, a whole range of people putting up their names for pre-selection. Uh, one of the interesting ones, Perth solicitor Amanda Kalis mm. um, of the, the famous Kalis Perling family. So she's considering um, nominating for pre-selection for uh, the seat that covers the area up around Exmouth, uh, which of course is where the family business first got going with their fishing operations. Mm. Uh, so that'd be good to see. Uh, Mount Lawley's looking interesting. Uh, James Fairbairn, who works for uh, recruitment firm Lester Blades, one of the candidates there. South Perth, very interesting pre-selection battle there. Uh, the Mayor, Greg Milner, and Hayley Corman, uh, partner of Matthias Corman, yep. uh, both uh, putting their hands up there. And then Netherlands is looking uh, more interesting. Yeah, well, there's a number of names there. Uh, Jonathan Huston put his name up there. People might remember him from uh, Croissant Express. He had that as one of his businesses. And Tintacar, I think he had that prior. And, uh, and he's also, I think he's been a candidate or at least tried to be a candidate in the past. Yeah, I think for a federal seat. And I... My recollection was he actually got the nod and then pulled the pin because he really, this was, you know, 15 years ago and he realised that potentially the travel was going to be a killer. Um, I think there was Tangney. I'm sure he ran for Tangney, but I could be wrong. Um, who else is going for that seat? Um, now, Elizabeth Court 
had been spoken of. She was considering, but uh, latest news is that she's not going to put a hand up for Netherlands. Yeah. And Perth City Councillor? Brett Fleeton. Yes. Uh, all right. And, okay, so that's a pretty uh, pretty active pre-selection battle then, you'd think. Yeah. And then layering over the top of it all, of course, is Basil Semplis, um having a tilt at uh, pre-selection for Churchlands. Mm. And interesting, too, that having formalised what a lot of us had expected for a long time, I think everything he says and does now is seen through that filter of him being a, uh, a future Liberal candidate. Yeah. So during the week, for instance, he had a bit of a Barney with John Carey. There was the closure of a hotel in Northbridge, which was potentially tied into a, um, a, sh- a shelter uh, that operated in a nearby street, uh, which arguably was turning people away. Yeah, um, That's been a, a long-running battle between Basil Zimplis and the Labor government. So it's going to be increasingly difficult for him to, uh, I guess, prosecute his role as City of Perth Lord Mayor now that he's formally known as a Liberal candidate. Do you think it'll be difficult? Well, that's my judgment, because I think everything will be seen through that political lens. Well, it will be, but it's an amplification. Everything he does will be an amplification. And, you know, if if you're running on a anti-government line, then, you know, uh, he's got a platform. He'll love it. And, you know, whether or not the voters of Perth City care, that's interesting, but, you know, I'm sure he can pick up enough subjects like this sort of thing to, you know, crank up the handle and make it difficult for somebody. Um, but But I agree, everything is through that lens. There's no doubt about it. Uh, and I wonder, you know, like, uh, where h- how many of these other candidates that you've mentioned are connected to Basil and his campaign? There'll be a few, I reckon, uh, for sure. All right. Um, now, uh, the Forests Charitable Arm, Mindaroo, reported its annual results. Quite spectacular numbers, the amount of money that Mindaroo Foundation spends each year. So their 2023 annual report showed total spending of $225 million. Mm. Uh, now, Andrew and Nicola Forrest have both declared that they want to spend their fortune um, while they're still alive. So they, probably, in fact, probably need to crank up their rate of spending because they're <laughs> what, collectively they're worth, what, $60 billion? Yeah, nearly. Certainly 50 Yeah, yeah, cer- yeah certainly around a that A huge number. number. Yeah, and I think Mindaroo itself is worth nine. Yeah, well... If you look at the balance sheet, net assets at June 30 were $7.6 billion. Their biggest asset is shares in Fortescue Metals Group that they have donated to the foundation. And with the rise in Fortescue's share price, you're right, their total endowment now worth about $9 billion. Yeah. Um, so they've got plenty of capacity to sustain and crank up their rate of spending. Mm. Um, I mean, that... Just in that last year, there was an increase of 65% in spending. Yeah. So, you know, they're endeavouring to spend their money. It's interesting. It's an interesting problem to have, isn't it? You want to give the money away, but, I mean, I guess a couple of things about them. They're not just giving it away. They are. They like to manage it and control it and come up with new things and new ways of doing things. Well, look, overwhelmingly they have in the past. The, the one thing that did change last year, they committed $150 million over nine years to a 
a US-based uh, sort of philanthropic collaboration called the Gender Fund. So clearly focused on gender equity uh-huh. campaigns. Uh, that's the largest ever single grant they've made. Now, within that total, there's about $33 million in FY23. Yeah, okay. So that was a rare example of actually just writing a big check to another organisation. Yeah. Um, if they want to give away their money, they might need to do more of that. <laughs> uh, the one thing that was not mentioned in the Mindaroo annual report or in any of the publicity around it, uh, but which Business News has reported previously, well, quite recently, was the fact that Nicola Forrest has set up her own charitable foundation. Um, it's called Coaxial. She's signed up a couple of experienced Mindaroo people, uh, Jay Weatherall, who's still at Mindaroo, and Bree Fraser, She'd been CFO, left last year. So yep. they're co-directors of Coaxial Foundation. And she said she's still committed to doing things with her what, former partner, Andrew. Uh, but the fact that she set up this new foundation, Coaxial, suggests she wants to do things on her own as well. Yep. And look, I think even before the split, there was definitely some effort uh, by Nicola to create her own identity and... Uh, separate herself from brand Andrew. Uh, and this is, you know, a continuation of that, I suspect. All right, finally, Mark, the grain harvest figures were finalised. It's no secret that it was disappointing. What do you got? But some really interesting trends, if you sort of dig deeper into the numbers and look at the long-term trend, which is a real positive for the farm sector in WA. So, as you say, the Grains Industry Association of WA put out a final wrap-up on the 2023 harvest, 14.5 million tonnes, and that was down nearly 50% mm. on the two previous years. But, of course, they were runaway success stories. The key thing that they talk about, though, I mean, sorry, that harvest was clearly affected by a poor season yep. with a big fall in rain, decline in rainfall. But what they've talked about longer term is the improvements in production systems that have been put in place by farmers. So the five-year average for the past five years is about 18 million tonnes. The previous five-year average, 15 million tonnes. So that shows this longer-term improvement. And despite that variability in a drying, warming climate, farmers getting smarter about how they operate using technology a lot of investment, a lot of R&D across the whole sector. Well, absolutely. I mean, you know, now what did it peak at? season before last, I think it peaked at 23 point something million tonnes, thereabouts. Now, you know, 10 years ago, we just kind of stated it then, 14 million tonnes was like, that was up there amongst the top crops and now it's seen as dismal. CBH is spending $4 billion on infrastructure over the next few years in order to have the capacity to deal with a 30 million tonne crop. So that's how much they anticipate the cro- crops cropping could get to uh, on what you're talking about, you know, better better utilisation of land, uh, better technology, you know, better science behind it all. And they've got to be able to have that capacity because they got stuck a few times in the past where they had a big crop and they couldn't get it, you know, couldn't get it onto the trains, couldn't get it onto the ships. So they're spending money to manage it better. You know, if you go out to Esperance where gee, when they have a good season, and they didn't have one this year, but when they do, it's enormous. They've literally doubled the capacity of the Esperance port and the nearby handling facility 
because of the huge volumes that come through there when the season's spot on. It's massive. Uh, look, incidentally, during the week I attended a, a agribusiness forum that Business News and HHG Legal jointly hosted. Great collection of people across the industry. Talked about a lot of the challenges that they're facing, but also some positives in there. And one of the people who was there works for Meriden Farms. So they're a big corporate sort of conglomeration. Yeah. Saudi-owned? That's right. So I think the biggest single um, conglomeration of uh, broadacre sort of farming in WA. Yep. And one of their senior people had had a career in the mining industry. Hmm. And he switched over a couple yeah. of years ago Gosh. to farming. Hmm. So I was just thinking, in light of our earlier discussions about some tough times in the mining industry, if people are looking for alternatives... There are plenty. Yeah. Maybe think a bit laterally. Yeah, and, and once you've been, you know, going up to the northwest, going out to the wheat belt's not, you know, it's 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 hot and dry right now. <laughs> uh, not so hot and dry in the winter. All right, Mark. Well, thanks for that. Uh, good wrap-up. And to our listeners, thanks for tuning in. Hope you've enjoyed this podcast and have a great weekend. The latest business news delivered daily. Subscribe and rate the show wherever you listen to your podcasts. For all the latest business news, visit businessnews.com.au.